0: December 1918, then President Woodrow Wilson attended the peace conference in Paris. An estimated one million clamoring crowds waved uh, hats and waved enthusiastically to him as his procession made its way to the conference. Cyclists on either side of the roadway kept back the crowds, and there were scores, literally scores of uh, mounted horsemen leading and following his entourage. Wilson's Hope, he had a 14-point proposal, and he wanted it to result in what was to become the League of Nations, uh, a way for nations to relate to one another to end future wars. Within 20 years of that event, the effectiveness of the League of Nations was in question. World War II was upon us. National Archives have a film. It's a silent film, but it's a film of his Reception and it's worth looking at. You can go to YouTube. I encourage you to do that. Not now, but uh, just go to YouTube and check it out. Our Lord's entry into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday pales by comparison with Wilson's entry into Paris. Now, we can draw some similarities. In each case, there was an attempt to welcome a uh, dignitary. Uh, There is the obvious need for peace in both scenarios. And uh, there was also hope for a brighter future. There is one glaring dissimilarity. Receiving a world-renowned president as over against receiving the divine king And wars have come and gone since then, but the fact remains, we need to respond appropriately to Jesus, don't we? Well, that's the theme that's before us today in the passage of scripture you just heard, responding appropriately to Jesus. We're going to look at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 25. If you have a Bible and can turn to it, that'd be a help. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 25. Now, this passage is divided into two sections, verses 1 through 11, uh, focus on receiving Jesus, and uh, verses 12 to 25 on serving Jesus. Receiving Jesus, serving Jesus. Those are the two parts of the passage. We're going to look at each of those. Well, what's the thing about receiving Jesus? Look at verse 1, please. He and his disciples are approaching Jerusalem from the east, Uh, Bethany told Bethphage. Uh, And we know something about that approach. It's from Gentile territory. And you know what uh, Isaiah chapter 9 has to say about Gentile territory. It's the place where people on the other side of the tracks live. That's where Jesus comes from, and presumably with crowds of Gentile descent. And we're also told that they're at the Mount of Olives. So what's Jesus do? Well, verses 1 to 3 tell us he sends his disciples to get a colt. Uh, According to Jewish tradition, if a person couldn't make it on foot, Uh, They were exempt from coming into Jerusalem for the celebration. But we know about Jesus. We don't have to look back too many verses to see that he's well able to walk. Uh, He could have, in other words, he could have come to uh, Jerusalem that Sunday as an inconspicuous walker. But he doesn't. He chooses to ride into town. Now, we're also told in these verses that nobody had ever ridden on this beast. It was borrowed. And Jesus anticipates there might be some resistance to his taking the colt, and so he says to the disciples, if anybody asks, will you tell him, the Lord, that is, I, Jesus, have need of him. Now, back then, people viewed uh, donkeys as especially suitable transportation for sacred purposes. And there's a specific Palm Sunday donkey reference in the Old Testament. Do you know where? Zechariah. Yeah, you got it. Zechariah chapter 9. Listen to this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Your king is coming to you, mounted on a donkey. And uh, Zechariah has another Palm Sunday Messianic moment as well. Chapter 14, you can look at verses 2 to 4, but uh, they include these words, that when he comes on that day, his feet shall stand on Mount of Olives. So here's Jesus with the disciples. I wonder if Mark just tossed in these details for the fun of it. Or might he be making some point here? Might he be suggesting to the reader that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy? If so, then Palm Sunday is not an incidental day in that year, nor an incidental Sunday of the 52 in that year. By his directives, in keeping with the Old Testament prophecy, Jesus is announcing a new age of blessedness. Now, let's just compare what we see in the Bible with what we know about first century cultural practices that are not included in the Bible. A victorious Greco-Roman leader returning from battle would, Come home with symbols of authority. In this case, Jesus is on a donkey. Make a ceremonial entry. Leafy branches played an important role. They signaled nationalistic interest back then. Uh, We might... uh, uh, We might think about seeing leafy branches back then as analogous to us being at a special event in the United States and hearing the Marine Band play Hail to the Chief. It would be that kind of um, signal. And uh, the disciples bring the colt, they throw their cloaks on it, they spread them in the road, and uh, they wave these branches even as the crowd apparently is swelling. Back then, crowds would welcome a victor with greetings and invocations. And what do we find here? This crowd shouts from from Psalm 18, the one we quoted at the beginning of the service, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And one more extra biblical practice. Military leader would climax his entry by coming to the temple. And we see in verse 11, that's what Jesus does. Now, the Bible doesn't say a word about this pageantry. Zip, nothing. But could Jesus have missed the message his entry was signaling? Doesn't it seem as if he is making sure that he'll be recognized? That he'll be noted as the coming messianic king. Well, what's next? Look at verse 11. He entered Jerusalem, went into the temple. When he'd looked around at everything, it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now remember, this is prophecy being fulfilled. But when Jesus arrives at his temple, nothing significant happens. You see that? Yeah. All that we know from verse 11 is about Jesus. A uh, small note about the disciples. He enters the Jerusalem. He enters the temple. He looks around. He goes out the king has entered his capital city, the king has entered his palace slash temple, and there's no mention, not a word from anybody. What kind of reception is this? Had an ancient city not extended a customary welcome to dignitaries or military victors, she could anticipate dire consequences. I mean, this seems like a public affront, like an insult to Jesus. And so we want to ask the question, is Mark sort of creating a, um, a street drama, if you will, Uh, to show us how non-triumphal this triumphal entry is. More than one commentator makes that point. Uh, Ernest Best casts it this way. He says, Mark's goal is to, quote, build up his readers as Christians and to show them what true discipleship is. The silence here, the non-response to Jesus when he goes into the temple seems to underscore an appropriate response by way of negative example. In other words, don't you readers of this record, don't you be like the Jerusalem crowd. Don't you be like the disinterested temple worshipers. The Lord has something better for you than that. Now, you might be thinking, perhaps, but don't we need to stick to the text? I mean, um, arguing from silence really isn't very persuasive, right? So just hold that thought for a moment. suppose Mark were describing, on purpose, a non-triumphant, triumphal entry. That, in itself, would raise questions like how ought a disciple to respond to King Jesus? And have I appropriately responded to him? And Where would an appropriate response to this king lead a person? Those are important questions, but I wanna pause. The opening verses, at least by some measure, suggest a non-response from would-be followers. And um, we ask ourselves the question, how could the jewish people who had one at one point said please give us a king we want a king give us a king how could they have read their old testament scriptures and come to this point where they don't even recognize the king that's among them well the fact of the matter is that people even followers of christ can drift from the lord right i mean think about king saul And the sad, sad ending to his life. Solomon warns us, guard your heart with all diligence because out of it come the issues of life. It is possible to stray from the Lord. And so let me just pause with you here and ask the question. Think about your relationship to the Lord recently. What's it like? Where are you and he today? Desiring God Ministry has an online presence, and Becky, a podcast listener, uh, wrote this sad story. She said, When I first came to Christ, I was on fire and in love with him. Slowly that started to fade. My husband deployed for six months. We had a bad marriage. And it's like I never knew the Lord at all. I've fallen into all kinds of sins, stopped reading my Bible, stopped praying. She continues I'm terrified of God. I'm terrified for my salvation. I want Christ, I miss him. I need help. Why is my heart so hardened? Can you help me? It is possible to drift from the Lord. People can be just like this with the Lord and then go away from him. So what hope is there for somebody like Becky who writes... I'm getting farther and farther away. These opening verses that we've just looked at are about receiving Jesus. We want to move on to the next section, which is verses 12 to 25. That's about serving Jesus. And as we look at them, I think we're going to come to an answer for Becky's question. And I think that we will also find answers to the other questions that come out of this apparent non-response to Jesus. So, let's look at verses 12 and following now. Our Lord goes into the temple, he looks around, he leaves. The next day he and his disciples return, verse 12, right? Now, you can think about this entire section, uh, verses 12 down through verse 25, as being like a hamburger. Uh, Verses 12 to uh, 14, they're one bun, one side of the bun. Verses 20 to 25, they're the other side. And then verses um, 15 to 19, well, they're the meat, they're the inner story. So Jesus sees this fig tree in a distance, and he's hungry. And so he checks it out. I just learned this. Leaves typically appear on fig trees before... uh, Let me see if I get this right. Yeah. Leaves typically precede the fruit. And so there's the possibility that there's going to be figs on this tree. But there aren't any. And so Jesus says, uh, verse 14, May no one ever eat any fruit from you, And uh, so we ask the question, what's going on here? Well, let's look at the inner story, verses 15 and following. Jesus is back at the temple a second time. He drives out those that are doing business. He overturns the the money changers' tables. Uh, He won't let anybody carry anything through the temple. And uh, to understand what's going on, we need a couple additional pieces here. The Jewish temple had sections that were reserved for certain worshipers. For example, there was an area called the Court of the Gentiles. It offered a place for non-Jewish people to come and meet the Lord, but the religious leaders had chosen to turn that part of the worship center into a shopping mall Effectively excluding Gentiles from the worship of God. And remember, God had said to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, My intent is to bless all peoples. And so Jesus reminds us of that in verse 17. You see what he says? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of robbers. And he is quoting from Isaiah chapter 56. Now you say, well, wait a minute, what's the robbery here? Huh? I don't think Jesus is saying, well, these guys that are selling are charging uh, way too much. I don't think that's the point. I think what he's saying is, they are robbing Gentiles of the opportunity to know the living God, to be part of the covenant. So, what gets Jesus goat here? Fruitlessness. Or we might say, rootlessness. Essentially, false religion being practiced in the temple. You know, a couple weeks ago I mentioned how sometimes people pray. Lord bless me and my wife, our son John and his wife, us four and no more, amen. Well, that's the kind of religious practice that's going on here in the temple. So he cleans house. And religious leaders are hopping mad. They want to kill this blankety-blank so-and-so intruder, into the way they do things. Now let's look at verses 19 through 21. Jesus and his disciples leave the temple and they go past the fig tree and it's withered. Jesus curses it in the morning. It's withered by the end of the day. Now maybe it was an especially hot day who knows? But one of the things that's interesting here is that it's withered from the roots up. You know what it's like when you have a tomato plant and you don't water it? You go out and you think, I, I'm going to get to it. And the leaves look a little droopy. And if you keep on, if you keep on ignoring your tomato plant, pretty soon the whole thing is hanging over. But the idea of it dying from the roots up, that's a whole different thing. This tree represents the Old Testament people of God, the Jewish nation at the time that Jesus comes into Jerusalem. It doesn't produce fruit. Temple worshipers are spiritually unfruitful. They don't welcome their king. They're busy making their nice, safe comfy life, and who cares that the king's in our midst, and who cares that he has an interest in the people at the ends of the earth. Yeah, Mark is silent in terms of interpreting the response that we see in verses 1 through 11. But the explanation in verses 12 through 19 is loud and clear. Not responding appropriately to Jesus can lead to severe punishment. It's typified in the fig tree. But this isn't just about one measly fig tree. It's rather about Israel's worship. And any community of disciples can end up rootless and functionless if they do they will be castigated for not properly functioning in relation to their king. And so you ask the question, where does this leave us? And that's right in verses 22 through 25. Please look at them. Jesus says, have faith in God. Jesus says, pray in faith. Jesus says, when you stand praying, forgive. Forgive. As a result of his death and resurrection, Jesus is about the business of building a new community. It's a house of prayer. And it answers the questions that we noted earlier. What ought a disciple's response be to King Jesus? Have I appropriately received Jesus, Where does an appropriate response to Jesus lead? Relationship with Christ always precedes responsibility to Christ. Faith in Christ comes before obeying Christ. It has to be that way. It can't be any other way. Now, assuming that you would call yourself a devoted follower of Christ... What is God's Palm Sunday message to you? What's his call on your life? Well, it's right there. Live in community with God's people. Jesus is building a house of prayer. Live in community with God's people. That's the first thing. Second thing, gather for corporate prayer. What's the third thing? Forgive those who have wronged you. It's right there in those verses. Now, let's make this as practical... As we can. Are you a committed follower of Jesus Christ? Well, let me ask it another way. Are you a committed, involved member in a local congregation of God's people? A couple weeks we're going to receive four new people into membership here. We are so glad. Melissa and Ray, Eric, Jed. You don't want to miss it, the 24th. Please be here. But also on the 24th, you know what's happening? New members class. If you're not a committed member of a local church, you ought to be. So come to the class and check it out. That's all you have to do, just check it out. Another point of application. In what ways are you about the business of praying with and for other believers? We meet, particularly for prayer, first Sunday evening of the month. You always know when we're going to pray because we have communion in the morning. We're going to pray in the evening, 6 o'clock. Join us. Enrich the life of this church and your own by coming and praying with other believers. And can you think of anybody who has wronged you? Anybody here? Yeah. This is a room filled with people who have been wronged other, by others, right? Well, the Lord's call to you is forgive. When you stand praying, forgive. Forgive. One of the things that I'm curious about and love to hear are the various stories that are represented in our church. I love to hear them. They are great encouragement. And so I want to tell you a little bit about Debbie's story. Yes, I ask permission. So she was about 30. Uh, Debbie didn't want to have anything to do with the church and she thought it was filled with hypocrites now if you ask her she'd say I'm glad that it had room for one more (laughs) the Lord amazingly changed her Uh, she was very troubled a friend said you need to talk to somebody go see Pastor Dave Gundrum at the Bible Fellowship Church here in town He did. She did. He explained the gospel to her. He explained how she could be forgiven, how she could have a new relationship with the Lord. And then he asked, do you believe? And Debbie said, well, I'm not sure. I want to. They prayed together and when he had finished, uh, he extended his hand to her and he said, congratulations. See you in church on Sunday. Well, You can imagine that that created a little angst. Uh, Debbie did have a good friend, though, named Linda, but Linda was a lapsed Catholic. And uh, not really sure the ramifications of her decision, Debbie went to Linda and she said, does this mean that I have to go to church on Sunday? And with great conviction, Linda assured her, yes, it does. You have to be in church every Sunday. And that next Sunday, uh, Debbie joined other believers at Grace Church, and and she would say, I never looked back. Well, the Lord began to make changes in her life, little by little. She's been part of Covenant Church for over 30 years, and aren't we glad? And she comes to prayer meeting once a month, and she joins others in praying during the week, And when she prays, I am here to assure you uh, there's proof positive that she forgives those that have wronged her. I can speak from experience. Well, Debbie's life shows us where discipleship leads. Disciples receive Jesus. Disciples embrace a local fellowship that prays and forgives and disciples live as part of the king's community Lord we ask you to bless your word to us now we pray that you would help us to be responsive disciples we thank you for the grace you extend to us you've said um, let the wicked forsake his way the unrighteous man his thoughts And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name.